Let's say that, that you'd like to get rid of your wife. Let's say that you had a very good reason. No, let's, let's, no, no, let's, let's say. Now, you'd be afraid to kill her. You know why? You'd get caught. Ah, oh, now, here's my idea. I'm afraid I haven't got time to listen, bro. Listen, it's so simple, too. Two fellows meet accidentally, like you and me. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Swap murders? <laughs> Each fellow does the other fellow's murder. Then there's nothing to connect them. Each one has murdered a total stranger. For example, your wife, my father. Crisscross. What? Oh, we do talk the same language, don't we? Well, sure, Bruno, we talk the same language. Thanks for the lunch. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I thought the lamb chops were a little overdone myself. Nice meeting you. Now, you think my theory's okay, guy? You like it? Sure, Bruno, sure. They're all okay. And welcome back to the Fear of God podcast. You know, it's certainly my favorite podcast. And if I had to wager a guess, I would wonder, it might actually be your favorite podcast too. With you right now is Nathan Rouse, one of your hosts, one of your co-hosts, one of your MCs, one of your co-MCs, who knows what we are, uh, you know, formally called other than just Nathan and Reed. But yes, right now with you is Nathan Rouse. Typically with me is Reed Lackey, just long time, long time chum. That's a tough phrase. Long time chum. You try that phrase three times fast. Reed Lackey, uh, who is again typically with me. He was here a minute ago. He, he really was. I saw him, but but ominously, he kind of he just kind of stared at the screen and he said, Everyone has someone they want put away. And then he just kind of slinked off. I don't know. It was a little, it was a little peculiar. Uh, I'm sure I'll be back soon, though. I mean, Reed, he's a good guy at heart. I'm sure that weird sort of ominous phrase uh, meant nothing really. But in the meantime, again, I just want to welcome you. You are, if you are unsure or if you just happen to wander off the beaten path and find this random, sparsely populated intersection of the Christian faith and the horror genre, you're at the Fear of God podcast. So we welcome you. We're thankful for you. It is the season of Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for you. I know Reed, uh, when he comes back, will express his gratitude for you. Just real quick, I want to give a shout out. Last week, we did The Stand, our most robust episode ever. Clocking in at a whopping three hours and five minutes. 
And and so that that was a great conversation. We're really proud of how that went. Wanted to give an explicit shout out, thank you to Blake Collier, Ian Olson, uh, Jeff Hansen, Andy Whitfield, and Spirit. Every time I say Ian Olson, I, my impulse is to say Ian Holm. He, he'd he'd appreciate that. Um, and you know what? In the spirit of Thanksgiving, in the spirit of the Ians of the world, uh, Malcolm Holm Olson. While Reed's gone, I want to encourage you guys to leave a rating or review, okay? Um, we really appreciate when that happens. It makes us feel good. Um, hopefully, it makes you feel good to make us feel good. It's just, a, it's just a real sort of thankful sort of thing, and I want to read one of those. We haven't done that before, but I just want to take an opportunity. I've mentioned the many Ians. I want to highlight one specific one. Ian Olson, thank you, brother. He went by the internet... Uh, pseudonym Bobby Terry itself, a reference to the stand, which we dealt with last week. Um, Ian had the kind words, the kind review where he said of the Fear of God podcast, both witty and unafraid to explore the hinterland of reality's horrors. There's that just lovely vocabulary, Ian. Thank you. The hinterland of reality's horrors. Reed and Nathan never lose sight of what makes horror films fun even as they probe the gospel's benefits for a frightened world. He finishes by saying, I just wish Nathan took his shirt off more. Well, brother, clearly you're not watching the podcast during the summer because these Carolina summers, they're, uh, they are hot. And uh, right now, though, it is in the 40-degree area in North Carolina. I'm in my garage. It's cold. I am, in fact, not shirtless for this recording. I am quite bundled up. Uh, anyway, Reed should be back. Thank, thank you, Ian, for that. Uh, Reed should be back any minute. But I did want to prep you guys for our movie today. Um, you know, Reed usually, because he is our sort of uh, aficionado, um, our main guy when it comes to the horror genre, he, he usually gets a little more leverage than I do in the things we cover. Um, but I had submitted long ago, and he finally, he finally let me have my way with this uh, option today. And so what we are covering, in fact is that little horror piece from 2006 that sees living legend Samuel L. Jackson bemoaned, what is with all these mother... Reed! <laughs> Reed! You're back! Hey, buddy! Hey, you okay? Uh, is everybody... I'm all right. Everybody off I'm all right. Is everybody off screen okay? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I feel much better now that everything's been laid to rest. Oh, wait. Oh, uh, to strike uh, strike that. I uh, feel much better now okay. that everything's been uh, put away. Oh, wait. No, uh, uh, not quite. Um, okay. Every th- now, that, uh, now that I have killed the person I went to. Wait. Oh, man. That was Whoa. bad. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Just wait. Um, sorry. Wow. Give me the strike that. Try, we need to, you try again? Yeah. To, yeah. You can edit that out. It. You can edit that out. Now that I... Can I tell you something? <laughs> so... <laughs> Of course you can. So there's an old Simpsons joke that oh, <laughs> so there's that old, is like the most read lackey phrase that exists. <laughs> oh, there's, there's this old, old Simpsons there's this episode. Old Simpsons there's this old. Oh my god! Go ahead. There's go uh, ahead, Homer. Tell there's me. this there's this episode of Treehouse of Horror where they like the the teachers start eating the students. I know it's pr- it's pretty grim, but there's one point at which um. They they cook and eat this very uh, overweight student named Uter, and <laughs> and the, the kids are like, oh, you know, uh, uh wh- where's Uter? We haven't seen Uter in a little while. And Principal Skinner's like, he's like, oh, you could say he's around. So they're like, oh yeah, he's 
there's a you could even say that there's a little ooter in all of us. He said, <laughs> you, you might even, and then he follows it up by saying, you might even say that we killed him, cooked him, <laughs> chopped him up, and ate him. <laughs> I can see the connection now. I can oh see what God. made you uh, what made you go to that story. Oh man, it's so funny. Hey, buddy. Yeah. Hey, man. So <laughs> hey, real quick, read. So it is. It is Thanksgiving season. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the podcast. Aww. I'm thankful for the listeners. I don't. While you were gone off killing Uter, um, <laughs> I, I did. I did share on air one of our reviews. Oh, and I, nice. I don't know if if you would feel you know feel the compulsion to do likewise. You know, if you've got one that you think is really I would love glowing to glowing and lovely that you'd like to share as well. I wanted to give you that opportunity. Take here, have the mic. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. No, sincerely. Yeah. We're very, very thankful to all of you who have taken the time to write a review uh, and rate us. I want to specifically read, uh, if it's okay, one from Mr. Rev Kev D. Glenn, he who just recently uh, won the Fear of God official Halloween costume challenge. Um, so he, he won. We want to say a special thank you to everyone who participated in that. That was so much fun. Uh, we had a really, really great time. And Kevin pulled out the win with his, uh, his and his wife's Gomez and Morticia Adams costumes. So, but I wanted to real quickly leave a review that he left for us last year. Um, he said, I learned about this podcast after hearing Reed on another podcast where he analyzed The Witch. Being a fan of horror, suspense, thriller films, and literature in general, and hearing someone who appreciated The Witch in particular, I was really impressed with Reed's insight and approach to film. Thank you very much. So, like a zombie to a fresh human brain, I was hooked. Every episode has been both fun and genuinely insightful. Reed and Nathan complement one another very well and are always well prepared. They know their stuff and do their homework, but come across in an approachable manner. I also appreciate their sensitivity to the way people might feel about the nature of their work and the content of some of the films they review. In addition to being a fan of the genre, I'm also a pastor, so it's not uncommon for folks from my church to struggle a bit with my love for horror, especially when a bunch of my church folks were at the theater to see God's Not Dead 2 while I was there to see Hush. That was awkward. Reed and Nathan model a posture that's been helpful to me and other Christians. They thread the needle in being at the same time respectful and sensitive to folks who may not appreciate or understand their approach, while also being confident and clear about what they are doing and why. Subscribe and share the fear of God with the others in your dark dystopian world. Kevin, thank you that so was, much. Those man. are good words. That's and Reed, yeah, very humble. Reed, I want to I want to live up to Kevin's review real quick and just say you're looking good man oh thank he said, you we, we compliment each other and i just wanted to yes i compliment think you. i think that is a very lovely little hoodie that you're wearing right he, there well th it's, thank it's you because nice. it is free it is cold <laughs> up in here um i also want to honor his commenting that we are respectful of others who may not quite understand what we do and say you know just categorically speaking in the in the conversation between god's not dead too and hush which one of those might actually be the greater horror movie? I just <laughs> don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. I know I was scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the point. They want you scared, Reed. <laughs> <laughs> We're not into Fear. theme yet. We're not into theme yet. <laughs> Fear will keep the local star systems in line. Oh, my God. Fear of this battle station. No See, kidding. You're Simpsons. I'm Star Wars. Yeah, it's We're true. both nerds, true. and no. we compliment each other well. Hey, Reed. In addition, so so it, we just there's a lot of thankfulness to go around. It is Thanksgiving. Tons. Um, yes. I was while you were gone too. I was telling the audience you walked in at a, at a you know opportune or inopportune moment. I don't know. <laughs> um, I was telling them how awesome it is to finally cover a film 
featuring living legend Samuel L. Jackson. You know, I mean, he's been in so many movies. Well, you know what? We did cover Jurassic Park. I forgot about that. So yeah. you know, props there, props there. But he wasn't quite the star as he was in the one we're doing today. But, well, but in this okay. one, you know, this is the one where he features so, his now infamous line, what is with right. all these mother well, strangers no, 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 no. on this mother train? Uh, wow. Right? I mean, that wow. line is so great. It's like, <laughs> it's like cinema history right waving, there. Wa waving, waving my hands at you. So, so... <laughs> What? So quick, quick. It's great. I love it. No, quick question. I mean, I'm glad we finally covered it. <laughs> no, quick question. So, what? Am I to presume <laughs> that you have prepared for this episode by watching uh -huh. the 2006 Snakes Strangers on, on a Plane, a plane. No, Train? No, no, no. And was, automobiles. Wow. What did what? you watch and how did you watch it? The Samuel L. Jackson one where he says the F word a lot. No, that's not. That that's, one. That's Snakes. Right. That one film where Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> says the F word. <laughs> yes. So so you watch. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Snakes on a Plane, right? That's what you said. You watch Snake. No. Strangers on a Train. The Snakes on a Train. No. The. Strangers so, on a Plane. The. Lord, give me strength. So, like, <laughs> you, we we watched. The assignment was to watch the 1951 Alfred Hitchcock classic *Strangers on a Train*, starring Farley Granger and Ruth Roman and Robert Walker. And instead, you seem to have located and watched 2006 <laughs> *Snakes on a Mother <laughs> Plane*. <laughs> 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 I got you to do it. That was all. That was all a trap. Just that was to the set only you thing? up and get you, just you to want, do that. You just yeah. Me to say that. That's awesome. Woo! Oh, it that's works, awesome. man. It works. So okay. yes. No. I this time I did not. Unlike Mariah Carey's Dream Lover, I did not actually. I just. It's just a fun. It's a fun bit. It's a fun oh, little bit. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, all right. Fair you know. Enough. But I did. I so Reed. We're back at it. You know. This year, the year two thousand. 18 here it is i forgot what year it was for a moment there because it's <laughs> just crazy town up in here um so nuts you know kind of like in 2017 we did this umbrella sort of series of the universal monsters um this year for us it was um the alfred letters um we we covered some seminal works of alfred hitchcock's and you know whether it's again alfred letters or the hitchcock block of episodes we did want to not leave 2018 without you know retouching the work of mr hitchcock right and so it's it's thanksgiving season mm -hmm. um we did think what more appropriate time to to dub a, a subset of that hitchcock block of episodes of just it's it's just a hitchcock's giving right you know like just do <laughs> just 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 do <laughs> just, i can't do it just do a couple of episodes in honor of Thanksgiving and just sort of appropriate his name into the holiday, right? I mean, it works. Sure. That's, that's sure. That's that's the bit, you know, like it's not. Yeah. Just get your mind out of the gutter, man. And so. <laughs> it's not. This, in the it's, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, know, let, me, so, let me just explain so, that my yeah, mind yeah, yeah. is rarely what? ever in the gutter until you say something and then guffaw. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll, never, I'll never forget the time we were sitting in our apartment back in North Carolina. And you're just sitting there. Wow. The, yeah, you're that just sitting like there at the computer typing away. Years ago. I know, but you're just sitting there at the computer typing away. And then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, you want to order me some DVDs? And then looked at me like, <laughs> like you just said something truly profane. <laughs> What is there? 
You're telling my secrets. <laughs> and it's like it's like I don't really think it's it's perverse or profane until suddenly you you guffaw uproariously, <laughs> and I'm like, what? Oh, I see. That was some sort of euphemism. I understand. Okay. I don't know what you are talking about. No, of course you don't. That was that was the old man. The new man has come. <laughs> Listeners, it's been a while since we've recorded, so we're a little fuzzy. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> well, he's washed that away, too. Oh. <clears throat> you said you did knock off that store. Um, oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah, so, no, I just I just like to walk people to the ledge. And I they, understand. They end, up, I understand. they end up jumping off of their own volition. I don't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Spoken like a true snake in the grass. Wow. Oh. On the plane. On the plane. <laughs> <laughs> hey, before we get too far, you know, it's Alfred Hitchcock. He has passed away. We need, like, in a slight moment of seriousness, mm. read. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I know where you're going. Yeah, brother. Stan, Stan Lee, man. And, you know, it's, it's, it, I, always, I always feel a little torn by these things because on one, on one level, it's always sad when somebody that is a beloved public figure and somebody who is still so prominently visible, particularly right. with all of his cameos in Marvel films and, and uh, still so out there at public appearances and Comic-Con events and, and everything like that. Um, so it's always very sad when someone like that passes. But at the same time, it's like while we grieve that passing, 95 years old, man, that is that is a, a, a well-cherished, full life uh, yes. meant to be celebrated. He was he was given, you know, a wealth of time. I was very uh, thankful kind of, you know, on his behalf that he not only got to as as so many creative artists don't get to see, they don't get to see the full celebration of their right. work in their yeah, lifetime. Yeah. And uh, and I and I was reflecting on like what a privilege that must have been for him to actually see so many things come to fruition and see the celebration and, yeah. and see everybody cheer on the Marvel Cinematic Universe for ten years plus while he was, you know, around and so well actually for ten years uh while he yeah. was around. And so uh so yeah, I mean I while while yes it's it's tremendously sad we we mourn his passing there's also tremendous reason to celebrate both on his behalf sure, and for sure. his work so, so it is yeah. it is kind of fascinating i mean i don't know i'm sure someone could easily point to someone who would fit this bill but like the level of just pop culture icon oh man and not just not just pop culture icon but pop culture creator you know yeah. i mean oh, i yeah. mean you you Superman and Batman and and some of those primary DC characters existed previous to 1961 when Fantastic Four launched but right you know Stan Lee arguably mainstreamed all of that yeah oh oh um, there's no question he is the anyway. yeah he is the figurehead for most of our superhero iconography because while and, and what little I know of him I'm sorry I totally cut you off and what little I know of him seemed people seemed to he he was a genuinely good man who loved what he did. Yeah. Oh, that's know? that's and definitely that's really, that's yeah. really beautiful to see. Yeah, that's definitely the consensus. Um, yeah. All I was going to say to further affirm what what you were saying is that while yes, you know, there are icons, you know, perhaps Batman or perhaps even Superman that might be individually larger than anything in the Marvel catalog in terms of sheer iconography, the the volume of characters yeah. that. Yeah. Stan Lee is responsible for is just overwhelming like and and I don't think any other particular individual comics creator can rival that pedigree you know like it's right. it's huge it's absolutely right. huge so, as a, as a yeah. final comic note 
um, I'll pour a, a cold one out for him here. So I posted this on the Facebook group. I am Reed right now, mm-hmm. enjoy, enjoying a glass of my Hellboy Hellwater. Oh, the whiskey, cinnamon stuff. C- cinnamon whiskey. Oh, um, okay. I, it's what I was in a distillery in Tennessee recently on a trip. Uh, with Fear of God listeners Stephen Hargrove and Matt Murray. Thank you, guys. Um, <laughs> and this distillery was like advertising this Hellboy beverage. And I was like, well, what's up with that? And um, so I bought some. And it tastes like cough syrup, you know. But <laughs> I guess that's that's sort of that's sort of what you get. You that know? does not when sound like an endorsement. By the licensing. <laughs> uh, it's fine. It's fine. I think Fireball's better. But, you know, ultimately... I have an alcoholic beverage with Hellboy on it that apparently is officially licensed, so that's kind of cool. Meanwhile, I'm sitting over here with my Dr. Pepper, and it is tasty hey, and wonderful. You know, so, well, good. Yeah, you will. You will definitely get us to the finish line. Then I'll be like, <laughs> no, hell water. Uh, all right, so Reed, we are in Hitchcock's Giving Part One. Um, we're gonna have Part Two next week while everyone's sitting around enjoying their turkey and whatnot. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, well, actually, no. This will. This one will be. During thanks, Thanksgiving. Yeah, this one. Yeah, this one will actually be so. So Hitchcock's giving is going to be like a you know a two week. <laughs> there it is. Yes, see there it is. <laughs> um, it's going to be like a, a two week celebration. But this one is actually like you know everybody happy Thanksgiving. We hope you enjoy yeah. your time with your family. Um, maybe maybe perhaps you were listening to us while you are traveling to wherever you are going. That would be a lovely yeah. a lovely thought. Um, we hope we will make it worth your time. Um, but Nathan, read. Before we get into all that, man, we got we got a priority oh, here. We got a, we a do. priority. Wow, you know, That's it's not been, even on my notes. It's, gotta, been, whoa. it's been so long. It's been so long <laughs> since I have had the privilege to ask you what you watching, what you reading, <laughs> what you listening to, my dude. <laughs> 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 wow happy oh. thanksgiving happy thanksgiving um, everybody i've got a i got a whole bunch here lackey well wait um i know i know oh okay yeah i mean wait you will do the one the corporate one do you have any others well no well, it's I been a while i didn't come prepared with any others because okay thought we we'll just, just don't talk about I, the one we'll do we'll do the corporate one and then you think about another one if you want or okay. i'll just or you don't have to no no i'll do, um, I'll so, do that I'll so do lead that. the way on the corporate one okay so the corporate one dude we both finished watching the 10-episode magnum opus, uh, each episode directed by Mike Flanagan that newly hit Netflix in October called The Haunting of Hill House. I, we did. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead the charge just because I, I loved it. it. Do it. I loved yeah. this. I loved this show. I thought it was really something special. Um, great, inventive, creative storytelling, emotional storytelling. Um, I feel like, you know, what, what you could certainly maybe ding a little bit down on just sort of like uh, narrative heft, I think is more than made up for by the the vibrance of the characters. And, uh, and I was really drawn into the emotion of it. It was genuinely very creepy and often jarringly scary. And I thought it was fantastic. I loved it. I thought it was wonderful. It was great. I mean, like it's, it is a, there's, there's a world where we may get around to figuring out how to cover this a little bit. So I don't want to tip my hand too much. I would, in the moment, out of 10, maybe land at like an 8 or so. But, sure, I mean, production-wise, it's almost flawless. Mm. It's And and what's kind of lovely about it is it's, it's, it's almost a shell game, right? Like, it's more family drama than ghost story, but it's both and, you know? And it's really cool 
how they execute that. Yeah. And it's really, if, if you're watching and or going to watch, um, we won't spoil anything here, but that episode six that gets so much praise, rightfully so, like that, it's really fascinating to watch a piece of film or TV in this case, or I guess, is it TV? Is it film? Blake knows better than all of us. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> I love you, Blake. Um, <laughs> you watch something like episode six unfold. And once you start kind of picking up on what it's doing, it's so neat to watch what I would call just a work of art play out before yeah. you. I mean, it's yeah. really, I mean, again, the, the, the 10 episodes as a whole is very strong. That episode six is kind of this lightning rod piece <clears throat> that, you know, is just, is just a, a gorgeous piece of, you know, uh, narrative and genre art. So, right. so no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Hill House. Um, I will tell a slightly funny story. Uh, about a week ago at the gym, which I occasionally do, I hurt my back, which is not oh, fun. No. And I do occasionally do that as well. I'm getting old, y'all. Um, so I hurt my back. So I was walking around like an old man for about 36 hours. Well, in about the 20th of those 36 hours, I was watching Hill House episode eight, I believe. And in episode eight, there is a jump scare to rival about any jump scare oh, that exists my in gosh. jump yes. scares in the Pantheon. So I'm laid up like an old fart on my couch watching Hill House. My back hurts. And what's amazing and awesome and perfect about this jump scare is you don't – it's it's sort of like the insidious Darth Maul behind Patrick Wilson jump scare, but like ratcheted up times a hundred, wouldn't you say? Like oh, oh my gosh, yes. Oh yeah. So like it's these a thing is happening that is utterly unrelated to the scare factor of the show. Yeah. And then a scare element happens. Well, y'all, I'm I may as well have tweaked my back again. I, I <laughs> leapt and I was like in pain all over again. It was it was it was funny and terrible at the same time. So yes, Hill House is definitely worth your time. Uh, if you've got a little bit of extra viewing time over Thanksgiving and haven't caught it yet, um, yes, indeed, it's do indeed. so. I will. I will add only to the mix. Although I'm staring at several others. Um, another <laughs> TV show. I, I actually remarkably burned through a good bit of TV in a short amount of time, but I did watch Daredevil season three. Mm. And and oh, Riri, I know you've got your your Rube Goldberg esque means by which you're watching. <laughs> if if. If even still the Marvel Netflix stuff, stop where you are and just start and 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 watch Daredevil season three. It is uh, pound for pound. It's not just the best Daredevil season; it's the best of the Marvel crop. That's period. What I've heard. Like, yeah, yeah, they they leave breadcrumbs that could could tether into future stuff, but it knowing that they're they pulled Luke Cage, they pulled Iron Fist, knowing that Disney Plus is on the horizon. Yeah, it, it is as good a spot as any if they decided to stop to stop it is it is as good i i don't know how they would top this um mm. and there's some great subversive aspects to it if you like that character whatsoever you will love daredevil season three so it is it is very much worth your time awesome awesome that's that's very very nice very nice um so the the one other one that i have i'm, I'm gonna mention this in passing not necessarily because it's recent or new, but just because I recently reacquainted myself with it. I believe it was either last year or a couple of years ago. Um, have you ever heard of a film called All Is Lost starring Robert Is it the Redford? Robert Redford. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen that film? I no, I've not seen it, but I do know what you're talking about. 
Oh, man. So uh, the first time I saw it, I was a bit maybe expecting too much because I was kind of kind of drawn in by the concept. The concept is that it is it all takes place out on the ocean. Uh, Robert Redford plays a very skilled sailor. But in the very beginning of the film, a, a buoy uh, crashes into his boat, causing a leak in the boat, a pretty substantive one. And what follows, uh, not all directly because of that collision, but just what proceeds from there is a very, very harrowing and dramatic survival story. Um, mm-hmm. And what is, if you can call it a gimmick, you you wouldn't necessarily be too far wrong, but it's it's more substantive than that. The story is very specifically trying to be artful in its strategy because Robert Redford is the only actor ever on screen, and he says exactly three lines in the film, one of which is kind of a prologue voiceover, the other one is a is a an expletive that is well earned, and then the other one is um, just a cry for help, and so like it, the film is mostly wordless and a silent film, and it is the first time I saw it, I was kind of like, well, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to make of it, but it kept coming back up in my thoughts, and I was like, let me let me try it again, and it came on one of the premium channels, and I was like, hey, you know, I, I haven't seen this in a long time, I'm gonna record this, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it again. And when I watched it this time, I was so, I, w- I was in tears several several places. It is harrowing. It is tremendously impressive on Redford's part because it, I mean it is it is him and exclusively him the entire right. time. And surprisingly, it w- I found it very riveting, much more riveting on a second viewing than I did on a first, which I find curious. But but I I have some strong recommendations about the film just in terms of watching. It, it's the kind of thing, and I'm not the first person to say this, but I definitely agree with this thought that it's the kind of thing that I could picture only being a movie. It can only be a movie because if something like this were a novel, you would be privy to all of his internal thoughts and all of the stream of consciousness things of his memory and how he's navigating through everything. But as this is, with really no uh, helpful voiceover along the way, no contemplative philosophy or anything, you just see him trying to navigate these obstacles and it's tremendously powerful, alarmingly powerful. Um, mm. I won't say anything about how it ends. There's a, a bit of ambiguity about the ending. That's as much as I'll say. But um, but it, it but it lands in a place that I find deeply beautiful. And um, and so yeah, I uh, I would highly recommend if somebody has you know the right framework going into it and sort of prepared to see the kind of thing that you're going to see, which is basically an hour and forty minutes of one man's struggle for survival without talking to anybody then I would highly, highly recommend All is Lost starring Robert Redford. What'd be really amazing is if there's like a a moment in that where kind of in the distance you see a little volleyball <laughs> you know, kind of on the surface of the water go by. And, you know, oh, and it's just gosh. like the 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 stranded movie star on the water yeah. share, shared universe. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They cross paths with those guys from unbroken for like a minute. And then like, yeah. No, wow. Great. Yeah. 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 No, sure. Great. It's, yeah. It's in the Bermuda triangle. Right. Yeah. So that's all kind of, yeah. Time, they, time is, they stumble on those poor construct. Two, sure, 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 sure. They stumble on those poor two saps from open water. I mean like it all, you know, it goes and then, yeah. and then they stumble into the shallows with Lake Lively. And there's yeah. Like, yeah, no, it's, it's but great. then, but then Roy Scheider shows up. Oh yeah, you know, smile. Yeah, yeah no, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. And then Samuel L. Jackson gets eaten by the shark, and we're back at Samuel L. That's right. That was in Deep Blue Sea. That was a scary moment, man. What crazy. you watching? <laughs>
<laughs> what you reading? What are you listening to? All right. You like that? I do. I do. I didn't even prep you for that. I was trying to keep no. you on your toes. You sure did. Yeah. It's been it, a while. It's been a while. And there was like four other people last week, sort of. And so, yeah. you know, we didn't really get to talk to each other. We just kind of no, talked around true. each other and at each other. So it's kind of. true. Well, hi, buddy. Hey, man. Um, <laughs> so right. we're not, we are not, in fact, talking about snakes on a plane today. No. Nope. To my chagrin. But we are talking about, you know, something that's close in quality <laughs> to snakes on a plane close. um right 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 it, gets, sure. it starts to scratch at the underside of that plane <laughs> it's like i see you plane i see you snakes on that plane <laughs> all of them wow <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is gonna be a fun episode y'all mm. y'all just saying uh, everything well, what's everybody. funny is you say that as though we haven't been recording for like 40 minutes already i know um, right no it's true so yeah we're, we're talking about alfred hitchcock's um Strangers on a train today. Yes. So you keep saying yeah. snakes on a plane so much. Now I you're know, just going to bust it out. No, the hell water has gotten me tripping over my words. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Reed, why don't you start us off with strangers on a plane? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this was uh, obviously was directed by Alfred Hitchcock in 1951. Um, it was a major success for him following a string of films that had not done well at the box office. So in many in many ways, People saw it at the time as a kind of a return to form for him. Uh, the basic premise, uh, for those who have never seen or heard of this film, is basically that the this tennis star, this tennis pro, is on a train and traveling through his hometown, uh, through to you know, to his hometown on his way to um, a tennis competition. And another guy recognizes him and starts up a conversation with him. Now, this other guy is a bit strange and uh, has some unusual flights of fancy about life and, and people's behavior and stuff like that. And through the course of the conversation, uh, this new man, uh, his name is Bruno, basically proposes, he says, you know what? Uh, he said, I've always fought, thought that what two people should do is two strangers should basically swap murders. You have somebody you want to get rid of. I have somebody I want to get rid of. I'm fast forwarding through a lot of plot stuff. But um, you have somebody you want to kill. I have somebody I want to kill. So we should crisscross. We should just completely crisscross and we should, uh, you know, just take each other's murders. Well, the tennis pro who's. Well, is- because of. The- well, I'm sorry to cut you off. His thought being. They'll be purely unmotivated. We won't be able to be pegged for these because... Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Right, right, yeah. Because right. we're complete strangers to each other. Well, the tennis pro, whose name is Guy, um, he says, you know, he's basically trying to placate Bruno. And he's like, yeah, sure, sure. Go right ahead. Well, Bruno sees that as a kind of a tacit permission slip, goes off and kills the the woman that is currently married to Guy so that Guy will go and kill Bruno's father. And so basically what you have is you have one man who has is essentially blackmailing and extorting the other one, having committed a murder that he will be blamed for. And he's basically like, hey, you're going to go down for this if you don't help me. You've got to go and kill my father, who, I'm, who I want out of the picture. And uh, so what starts is a kind of a... Uh, it's a bit of a moral dilemma, but, I mean, there's not much dilemma about, like, hey, you shouldn't kill people, but it does uh, raise some interesting and, and I think, very suspenseful story elements about, like, ex- you know, the nature of extortion, the nature of pressure and blackmail, and, and there's a lot more stuff that I'm sure we'll get into when we get into the theme, but that's the basic premise of this film. 
so I, this is one that I have seen multiple times. This was your very first viewing of this film? Indeed. Okay, so so in general, well, let me ask this, because I always like to know this when we're talking about these Hitchcock films. Did you, did you have any idea what to expect? What did you think, you know, going into this film you were going to you were gonna kind of get? Um, well, honestly, I, it was funny. I think Rope may have misinformed me here. No, I, I knew nothing about it other than the title. And by invoking Rope there, I just simply mean I think I was expecting going in more of a bottle-type narrative like ah. the, the as the title suggests strange on a train like was it going to be a new sort of thriller kind of you know genre but sure, um, sure. didn't know any narrative elements so <laughs> so at the 10 minute mark when they when they deboard the trains like oh well okay we were <laughs> strangers on a train and now we're just going to be strangers out in the world you know um <laughs> which is a far less impactful title <laughs> yes yes totally strangers out in the world like isn't that just about everybody um so so once I kind of got over that, no, I, I actually, um, I think it's possible your multi viewings have, have let you marinate it in a, a little more than I would have, but purely based on this single viewing, I did enjoy it a lot. And in mm, fact, yeah, I'll say, I, I don't know at this moment that thematically will get as robust as we did with, um, as robust a conversation as we did with Vertigo. But what's interesting is, if you recall, I didn't enjoy the watching of Vertigo that much. It was more the reflection that yielded a whole lot of interesting uh, yeah, right, thought. Right, right. Whereas with this, no, it was very much in that kind of thriller mold. Um, it kept you curious as to how... Because, you know, it's interesting in our movie next week, uh, just... Spoiler, it's the birds. We figured, you know, it's Thanksgiving. <laughs> Strangers and birds, you know. You're going to sit down with people you may or may not know, and you're going to eat a bird. Um, <laughs> like, n you naturally like Guy simply because he's the quote-unquote protagonist, but whether it's this or the birds, there aren't that many, like, inherently likable characters. Sure. Effectively, right, right, right. Guy is, even though protagonist he is, he's still cheating on his wife. You know, and, and true, it's, yeah, yeah, and, and which again isn't meant to be like let's hate the character. I'm simply saying it's interesting watching the sort of moral machinations of these characters conflicting and 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 striking off of each other. And so, certainly, I did find it a really interesting viewing to figure out. Okay, because I didn't know. Well, the natural presumption would be guy doesn't actually kill the dad of Bruno, but I didn't know that. Sure. So, you know, in the, the first novel, 30 he minutes. Does. Oh, really? Yeah. In the no and, and I have never read the novel. This is just something I stumbled upon in my research that, yeah, American in the novel. Psycho in this. So, yeah, basically. <laughs> You're never going to let it go, are you? So, um, <laughs> so but no, so, uh, so he, uh, but yeah, in the novel, from what I read, again, I don't know particulars, but in the novel, he actually does uh, commit the corresponding murder um, well that's interesting yeah i know right it feels very foreign given where this film goes why he would do a thing like that but yeah so i mean i would have to read the novel to understand but yeah um anyway so so no i was i was pretty taken with the narrative um of trying to figure out how does guy wriggle out of this sort of trap he's caught himself in inadvertently sure, um sure. but but no found found the viewing of it very compelling and i i think in the final analysis, Rope may be my shining light of the Hitchcock we've watched this year. Mm, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do think this one 
for enjoyment factor ranks up there. Yeah, it's that that's that's encouraging to hear. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I mentioned that this was his first major success after four failures. Mm-hmm. One of those failures was Rope. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, just uh, I think at the time, people didn't quite know what to what to make of it, how to respond to it. Um, they, of Rope. Of Rope. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, but again, Strangers on a Train was very much a a classic suspense thriller in the classic Hitchcock style. Um, it's got a very it's got you know an innocent man premise. Um, it's got this. Uh, it's got a murder right up right up top. Um, and it's got the threat of you know Hitchcock himself, and he, he said this in several interviews that he lived under this pervasive fear of being accused and convicted of something he did not actually do. So that was one wow. of several elements of, of some of his films of this just whole this innocent man idea of like, uh, and it shows up in many, many of his films where somebody is either coincidentally or circumstantially, you know, uh, accused of doing something that they did not do, um, either had nothing to do with involvement or, you know, happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or like this one had a sort of a direct connection to it, but still did not you know, endorse what took place. So yeah, he, th- that's something that I find very fascinating and, and, and why I think it's pivotal in Hitchcock's rendition of this film that, of this story, I should say, that guy not commit the corresponding murder. Um, right. Something that struck me, uh, this is not trivia, this would maybe be in likes, dislikes, but I don't quite know where to put it. It was just an observation that, like, it struck me that uh, his wife is supposedly pregnant. Did you? Catch yeah, that? and oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah, and then there's no mention of it again. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's so it's so strange because yeah, the, he and so it makes me wonder, given her very obvious attitude towards like extorting and coercing him, uh, you know, guy. Right. Um, it made me wonder if she was lying about that. If that was something that she had just invented, because I I just don't know. It's like the film doesn't give me any clues on that specific front as to whether or not she is actually with child at the time. Because, again, it's in light of her murder. It is never mentioned again. Um, And so it so it just leads me to believe that maybe that was a a falsehood. uh, But I couldn't find any intentional research in my research. I couldn't find anything deliberately mentioning whether or not that was just you know, a, a plot device that was dropped or if it was meant to imply that she was faking that bit of news to try to, you know, well, keep Guy on the hook. I actually don't have any of these anecdotes in front of me, but I would encourage reading the, and it might be on the IMDb as well, but the Wikipedia oh, okay. uh, for this film. The, his, his being Hitchcock's passion for the material carried through a lot of a beleaguered production mm. process. Ah, and okay. so it wouldn't surprise me that it's possible to the point that I do think there were multiple scripts at a certain point, you know, like that it I wouldn't, su- find. Yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if that was shot or, or, or the latter stuff was shot of her death and then it's not mentioned. You know what I mean? It, it wouldn't oh, surprise sure, me if, sure. it, if it's just a kind of a production snafu that you just kind of were like, well, I guess I'll just sort of ignore it. <laughs> you know? Right, 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 right. Um, I, I don't know that, but it strikes sure. me as one of those kind of things. Yeah, it, you mentioned the beleaguered production. So Raymond Chandler, the very famous, you know, sort of pulp noir uh, novelist, uh, is credited with the writing of this, but presumably 
he was an incredibly difficult man to get along with. Uh, he was an alcoholic and uh, nearly always drunk and just uh, perpetually difficult and very insulting, very abrasive. And uh, so naturally, he and Hitchcock, uh, Hitchcock having a pretty hefty, decent ego of his own, did not really get along very well with him. Most of what you know finalizes in the ultimate script presumably was the work of uh, the writer who's credited second who is his name which i feel bad i'm struggling to pronounce his name correctly senzi ormond i think is how you say it um but supposedly most of what made it to the screen was actually the the work of that of that writer and not not directly by chandler well and to as a quick note, in fact, the person whose name you just struggled with is a, is a woman. Um, what? Uh, yeah, and, I didn't even um, know that. Yeah, well, apparently, the, once the Chandler Hitchcock conflict became impassable, and they parted ways, he and Ormond. What did you say her last name is? I'm not or- looking at or- it right Ormond. Now. Senzi yeah. Ormond, yeah, yeah, he and he and Ormond basically do a page one rewrite on the script wow. to the point that they were prepping, and because I think of Hitchcock's appreciation for Ormond's contribution, were prepping to exclude Chandler from the final product, but the studio insisted because of his clout that mm. Chandler's name remain on it. Interesting. I did read, and and maybe you stumbled across this as well. I did read. Yeah, it's so funny. Peek behind the curtain, everybody. For for the research that Rev Kev Glenn so uh, so graciously applauded us for, I usually consult IMDb. Nathan usually consults Wikipedia. So sometimes we have <laughs> carryover information, and sometimes we have uh, you know uh, a bit uh, dis- contrasting information. Contrasting yeah, information, yeah. yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah. So what I found out is that supposedly with this production, they were pursuing uh known names entirely uh they were trying to pursue uh, famous novelists famous screenwriters in general and so many people like passed on the material so many people said like oh yeah i don't want to get involved in that you know cheesy silly pulp story um i think dashiell hammett another famous pulp writer passed on the material um and so finally when it landed on raymond chandler almost as a gruff little like, yeah, I'll do it. Sure, fine. <laughs> you know, and then, of course, you know, the, the rest well, of the Well, and I think, too, out. the studio foisted Ruth Roman upon the casting. Like, like I don't think Hitchcock actually liked her. Uh, really? If I'm, remember, if I'm remembering oh, yeah, my yeah, notes yeah, yeah, correctly. Yeah. You're right. No, he didn't like her, and supposedly not many people on the set did either. Really? <laughs> supposedly, and yeah. And that's if you watch the movie, that's Anne, the love interest that Guy, you know, has left his wife for, or is in process of sure um any other specific trivial bits um the one one somewhat sad note um so oh, the, read uh, i know i've always got to be a downer so uh no so uh, <laughs> two two things just to notice if you're watching this film uh there are tons of dualities in the film uh there are lots of individual shots some of them very overt and obvious and some of them a bit more subtle just of pairs of things Pairs of feet enter the frame. Uh, In the train station, everybody is walking in in pairs. There are no groups. There are lots of scattered pairs. Um, Lots of little shots of two glasses, um, two train tracks uh, emerging. So there's lots of dualities in the the structure of the film that never really hit you over the head with it unless you're looking at it uh, or looking for it. Um, But I find that really interesting. And then uh, the second thing, the the sad note that I referenced earlier is, so Robert Walker, who who plays Bruno Antony, um, 
Eight, eight months after filming wrapped, I could not find whether the film had premiered or not by this point, but eight months after the film had wrapped, um, he died very suddenly from an allergic reaction to a drug he had taken. Um, wow. And uh, so this was his final on-screen appearance. And, and He's great. Oh, he's fantastic in this film. And presumably, you know, we're talking about some people who were difficult to get along with. Presumably, he and Farley Granger had a fantastic uh, working partnership on this film, that they really just got along really well. They enjoyed doing scenes together. They became friends outside of the context. And so Farley Granger was deeply saddened by his very sudden passing. And so from from all accounts that I could see, uh, Walker was a very generous and, and excellent performer does fantastic in this role and yes it is is very sad to learn that he that he died so quickly after it was finished well thanks for finishing off the trivial bits with that note riri um yeah. on likes dislikes <laughs> go ahead and take us away what did, what did you like dislike on this um one? well i do love you'll appreciate this uh in both of these films i did see mr alfred in both of them without being nice or or, or knowing where to look i am um, proud of you Thank you. In fact, it's funny when I was reading the Wikipedia on it after the fact and it highlights where he is. I was like, no, I don't want that affirmed because I want to be able to, with a clear conscience, tell Reed I saw it and knew where it was. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he is, he's is—he's got the upright bass getting on the train with some other strangers. That's it. Um, Quick note on that. Another trivial bit yeah. that I didn't plan to say, but since you mentioned it, um, that, in, that one specific scene, since, Hitch, since Hitchcock was not behind the camera, uh, was directed by his daughter, Patricia Hitchcock, who plays the sister of Anne in this in this film. Look at there. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> she was also the uh, co-worker of one Miss Marion Crane in Psycho, if you were paying attention to that, too. Uh, I mean, I was paying attention, but I wouldn't have caught it there, you know, so now that you're connecting those dots, Well, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, my, my likes, dislikes aren't, there, there's not a ton that I bullet pointed here. I think I actually did get to where I was just enjoying the film and, and didn't take a ton of notes there. But I love the line when Bruno and Guy are on the train initially as strangers on a train. Um, <laughs> where And it's just, this, it's just this little line nestled in Bruno's chatter. And he says, I certainly admire people who do things. And it was just, I don't know, it struck me as really funny. It's like, wow, <laughs> he must admire a lot of people. I guess um, so. What I did come to find was and is a seminal piece of movie canon and history. Um, I did make a note of the framing of the murder of Miriam in her glasses lens. Oh, um, yes, that, yes, yeah, is 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 considered a a a piece of uh, film history and is studied in classes and whatnot. It's a brilliant um, shot. Brilliant shot. Yeah, uh, I did I did make a random comment that Bruno is the personified version of the two friends from shadow of a doubt the dad and mm. the friend yeah yeah you know, yeah, just this yeah, yeah. like hey how would you kill this so-and-so you know but sure sure unfortunately bruno actually has intent <laughs> um i don't know i just i really that that's uh, like i said that's kind of the last time i likes dislikes because of the bulk of what you might actually identify i put in scares um i just really enjoyed the kind of cat and mouse aspect of it in a way that structurally feels different than the normal cat and mouse kind of sure sure frame framework if that makes any sense no absolutely um one of the things i yeah it's funny because one of the things i really appreciate about this film is how insidious and well okay so 
the coercion that Bruno tries to enact on Guy is really not sinister at all in his approach or in his his language or demeanor. Like he here's what I mean by this. He is like a jovial sort of like gregarious guy. In fact, there was um you know studies on this film particularly have pointed out and rightfully so uh, because it was intentional on Hitchcock and Robert Walker's part that clearly Bruno Antony is meant to be an effeminate man that he's meant to if not be you know an outright uh, gay man that he's supposed to be at least to sort of uh, have an effeminate quality to him now some of that was you know not meant to be specifically sort of making a comment on that lifestyle or anything, but just more as, as making him very friendly, approachable, making him someone that, you know, is, again, is just gregarious in his behavior and attitudes that when he's approaching, that, like I, I'm thinking of that one scene, I think it's outside of the museum where he walks up and he's like, guy, what are you doing? You're making me come out in the open. Like, this is not how this is supposed to be. You know, like instead, right, instead right. of this vicious malevolent thing, he really doesn't turn into malevolence until guy appears trying to warn who he thinks is Bruno's father, and then it turns out to be Bruno. It's not until that moment, really, that the that it really pivots into malevolence for me. Now, that having been said, I think that the the murder, the Miriam murder scene, this would probably be in scares, but I'm going to pivot back to likes, dislikes, but the Miriam murder scene is chilling to me every single time. Just the, the lighter, the very abrupt, is your name Miriam? And then just... You know, like, right. like, you know, culminating in that brilliant shot you mentioned earlier. Um, but yeah, just in general, I I really love everything about Robert Walker's performance here. I mean, I just yeah, I just think it is great. so pitch perfect for this kind of character. And so. So, yeah, I uh, I really appreciate that. Something else on my likes, dislikes. Um, I absolutely love you mentioned the shot earlier in the glasses. Probably my favorite shot in the movie is at the tennis match where he's looking across and every yeah, other person, oh, it's brilliant. Every other person in the stands is watching the match and tilting their head back and forth, back and forth as the tennis ball bounces into each court. But Bruno is sitting there just stagnant and staring down guy. And it's brilliant. It's a chilling shot. Yeah. It's wonderful. Uh, just an excellent uh, piece of filmmaking. Um, one thing that would kind of be a dislike for me, and it's it's got a bit of an interesting history behind it, I actively don't like narratively or as it plays out the strangulation simulation at the at the dinner party. Um the one where Bruno is like talking yeah. with the older woman the and, old lady. Yeah, and and then he like, you know, says he's going to pretend to strangle her, actually does wind up strangling her and everything like Something about the the scene just feels off to me. Uh, it it feels like Bruno's tipping his hand too much. We already know he's kind of crazy. This is a very public sort of strangulation thing, and yes, he passes out in it. But it but it's all it all feels false in this film that is otherwise sort of hiding in the shadows, and his malevolence is hiding in the shadows. Come to find out in my bit of research that Alfred Hitchcock himself would actually do that. Now he wouldn't actually strangle people. Do what? But he he wouldn't actually strangle people. But he would set scenarios up in which he was talking about things at dinner parties, about ways he would kill people and would, you know, like hold on to people's windpipes and try to, and convince them to try to scream. Like that's, that's a little, if you want to call it this, a parlor trick that Hitchcock would actually do at dinner parties. And I'm just like that. Wow. That that's is, that is jacked up. Wild. <laughs> I know. Right. That is, that is so you're so arguing that the scene feels a bit like artist indulgence and not narrative, uh, demand. Kind of, kind of. Cause it just feels, it's the only um, scene in the film that films that feels just like, 
asynchronous with everything else that's going on to me at least and i love this film i mean i th- i think if I, I you know um i don't have that strong of a feeling about that scene one way or the other but i guess if there was no moment where barbara the sister is there and he kind of his brain clicks off kind of thing. And he starts actually like, in other words, if that external incident didn't propel him into a different stage of things, I maybe would agree with you. Gotcha. More okay. wholeheartedly yeah. Yeah. as it is, as it is, it didn't in the moment, it didn't strike me as anything other than him actually getting a little more comfortable in his exercising this, this sort of inner, inner, whatever. Sure. Sure. No, that, that, that makes sense. It makes sense. Um, does it read? Does it? It does. It does. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, so, what do you have? What do you have in your scares list? Oh man! So again, not knowing anything about this movie going in, you're immediately kind of upon meeting these two characters, you're like, "Oh my gosh, Bruno!" Yeah, uh, yeah. And and what I wrote is just Bruno the super creeper. Um, <laughs> I love. And maybe this is cause for me to watch more Hitchcock, and for that I would say thanks, Riri. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I love just good, this has come up in other episodes before, but just good kind of crisp dialogue. Mm. So I I do love just kind of crisp dialogue, and I love the moment, but it is on scares. Um, these A lot of these kind of straddle those lines where Bruno says... Let's say you want to kill your wife, and guy says I don't want to, and Bruno just goes, "Let's say," <laughs> and it's it's just this great little bit of character work that's just this really, I don't know, just real fun, tactile, like you know what makes me enjoy movies and storytelling is little little moments like that, sure, just real yeah. organic characters engaging with each other. I really loved that little moment. Sure, oh, it's great. Um, and you alluded to this a few minutes ago, or at least in a sideways fashion, um, the, in terms of scares, the scene when we just kind of drop in to Bruno's mother giving him a manicure. It's just, <laughs> it's like equal parts. I did not expect that moment. And right. Kind of odd and quirky. Um, and that robe he's wearing too. It's so ridiculous. Oh, it's it's amazing. <laughs> I want one. <laughs> um, and then kind of just the last on my, my scares list here. It's just a little trio of moments. Um, one is, and they're all around Bruno scenes he's in, but one is him on the steps in Washington. You know, that kind of Oh, my shot. gosh. Yeah, the one it's where just, he's up at the corner? Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. It's just a really great shot um, because you've, you've learned enough about this character to kind of know he's not going to do anything out in the open. Right, But just right. His, his presence, he's starting to loom larger in Guy's everyday life. Absolutely. Um, so that's really cool. And honestly, it, I won't say I got like goosebumps at it, but it's a real chilling moment when he sends and guy opens the envelope that is a house key and room. Map. Oh man. Yes. Oh, that's yes. intense. Yes. Very much so. Very much so. Um, and you know, I love, uh, I don't know if you felt this way watching it, but I love that you don't quite, you're like, what is he doing? Like when he, when he goes to the house and it's like what like what's about to what's about to happen here? And you mean it, what is guy doing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's like yeah, like yeah. what is this? Like it like you you get the sense that he's not going to go through with anything. But it's like what well why right. is he here? Like what's what's going on? And then uh yeah, then of course tries to warn Bruno's father 
and you know finds out that Bruno has has crisscrossed him. Um, but uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. That's a that's a really. I think my, honestly, my very last one on scares us is just we've already referenced it, but the choking scene. I mean, it's just. Yeah, I yeah. think. I think again, maybe your multiple viewings, you can observe it a bit more objectively, but in the moment, it's just really unexpected and it feels really odd, but it doesn't feel off for the mm-hmm. character. It is definitely odd behavior, but that's from a character we're beginning to see more and more increasingly odd behavior. From. Sure. Sure. Um, no, that makes sense. And yeah. So, so those are, those are kind of my scares. What, what sort of would be on your list for that? So the major one for me, and it's, uh, you know, a couple of them you've already, we've already talked about, you know, Miriam's death scene and, uh, you know, sort of the, the tension at the tennis match. I'm going to mention two things that are kind of on my scares list, but just because of how unnervingly creepy they are. Well, one is unnervingly creepy. The other one is just nerve wrackingly tense. So uh, the one really creepy one is when he drops the cigarette lighter or the, you know, the, the, cigarette case as it were you know no it's a lighter um down into the grate oh that's great oh man and just that slow creeping like my arm hurt vicariously (laughs) for him like you know slowly creeping his hand down into that grate to try to obtain that lighter is just oh man that is just unnerving and creepy and you know why he needs it but it is just so yeah it's 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 very chilling and then the other one that I think is just just completely tense is the runaway merry-go-round, like where they're on there and then the, the merry-go-round is just continuing to cycle faster and faster and going out of control. So uh, one bit of, uh, you know, stepping back for a second into trivial bits, but that shot where the uh, carnival worker crawls under the runaway merry-go-round was not... A trick shot fabrication. Right. That yeah, was yeah, that was real. actually taking place. And he's not an actor. He's actually just no. a, yeah. a a carny. Absolutely. Know? Which I I love that element of the story. But I'm like, dear lord, <laughs> good thing something didn't go wrong there. Because and and that was actually so Hitchcock, uh, I guess to his credit, said that that was the most dangerous stunt that had ever been in any of his films, and he would never do anything uh, that dangerous again. Uh, stay tuned next week. Uh, he lied, but so anyway, uh. but, but at any rate, so, um, so yeah, but I just, I find that entire sequence with the merry-go-round, uh, to be just insanely nerve wracking. And I've always loved that sequence just as a story element from the perspective of, of just cinema and, and watching, like, it, it was just great. Like the tension when the little boy almost falls off and, and just all of these great little internal moments the the carnival worker is trying to point out it's like hey that's the guy and they're like yeah we know (laughs) you know and so there's just lots of little layers going on in that scene so uh maybe that should have been in likes dislikes or whatever but i just consider it to be so tense i put it in my scares um but yeah that's i mean admittedly it's not uh, a terribly like frightening film i do think it's incredibly suspenseful at times but yeah I, i i really like that um did you have anything, you know, sort of burning or, or foremost on your heart and mind that you wanted to say for the theme of Strangers on a Train? Um, yeah, and it's really more meant to be kind of a conversation starter, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, of course. Because I don't have, like, this pre-scripted thing like I sometimes will. But what I want to talk about, Reed, on a on a podcast, which is audio, and it's talking, and words are used, and... It's not a visual medium. Um, is is our words? Hmm. 
something that I found really fascinating about this movie. And, you know, you, you could easily make the case and, and it wouldn't be hard to sell me on that this is a movie after a bit of a morality play idea, but I don't know that ultimately that's the heart of what Hitchcock was after, but I couldn't kind of shake what is the inciting incident for this story. Mm. And that's careless words. Yeah. 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 And, and it isn't just, you know, you, you could make a case of careless words. Yes. But also just accountability for careless words. I mean, you've got, you've got a, a, a pair of scenes. This is back to your duality perhaps here, but Mm -hmm. a pair of scenes. One is the, the unfortunate, um, he's trying to just be placating to Bruno, but guys sort of, yeah, 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 that, that, that could work kind of feeling that we've, man, not, not with those exact words in that exact scenario, but we've all been in those situations, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Where someone sort of is saying the thing that you're a little uncomfortable with and you're just like, yeah, yeah, that's right. You're right. You know, just to be dismissive. That thing is cool. Whatever you just said, I'm a little creeped out by, but I'm just going to say it's cool. So you've got that, that you've got your Bruno character who's a little misaligned internally takes to heart and and sort of propels him down the path of, of his own ultimate demise. You got that scene and then you've got guy on the phone with Anne. Oh, uh, when the train is going by and he's yelling. What I don't I actually didn't write the line down, but it's effectively, you know, I wish she were dead or something like that. He says I could I he says I could strangle her. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And I think that I I don't I don't want um I don't want to take a, a a conceit that is not about this and just blanket apply it to this, but I do think there's some correlation here. I couldn't help but think of social media. Mm. And what I did write down as sort of incitement for conversation is just the phrase words are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I want to distinguish, and I think you would too. I think about Jesus's words of if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Right, These, right. This sort of parade of, of sort of extreme measures meant to illustrate a finer point, right? Mm, like mm-hmm. the disciples didn't walk around having their hands cut off. Like like it's, this is not meant to be a literal sort of exercise as much as it's meant to be a dig deeper in the heart kind of exercise. Right. So I do, I do think there are, we you know, kind of like uh, in scripture, there's apocalyptic, there's epistle, there's uh, wisdom literature, you know, like the ability to recognize there's there's you and I on a podcast of 20 years of friendship. I would not necessarily say being careless per se with words, but but being more free and perhaps glib and and open and one could accuse of flippant. Mm. So there's that. You know, there's there's words used in relationship. Right. Right, right. 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 Mm-hmm. There's a relationship between you and I and that informs the words that are used in, in the dialogue, in the conversation, in the the silliness or what have you. Well, then 
there are words that are used divorced from relationship. Hmm. And that is the problem. Hmm. <laughs> you know, hmm. that that is where most of our problems with our words falls. Um, and I've, there's so many ways I think there's something that can be construed as positive about what we would call today of social media or even the internet as it currently exists. But there's also so many ways that we're using the words that we fling onto it in, in purely destructive fashion, mm -hmm. even when we don't intend it. And that's the point I'm trying to get at. There's intentional abusive language. Yeah. Then there's unintentional yet nonetheless responsibility attached to language that we use and i've i've pondered now hear me like listen to 101 or, or or take a glimpse over the years this won't be a surprise to you i was in therapy for a number of years for some life stuff and realized the value of that environment mm. which is say whatever you need to in this place this person can hold them it's a relationship. Right, um, right. It's you, you, there's only accountability in so far as, hey, you've said this thing, unpack that for me. Mm. What, what we've done is taken social media and made it therapy. Uh, and that mm -hmm. is a scary, devastating thing that we only, I think, are beginning to see the effect of. And what I simply mean by that, you know, I don't, I don't mean to get too high-minded there, other than to simply say, we have a thought and we throw it on social media mm -hmm. because, well, it's my friends. You know, my friends are seeing it. My friends are seeing it. Okay, well, how well do you know these friends that you're now connected to that you went to elementary school with or whatever? Like, like the relationship doesn't exist where the words that are used that may have, that may require unpacking don't have a relationship to support. Right. And I think what's fascinating about this movie is it illustrates the exact problem we're beginning to run into. This is a really random sort of throw in here. But I read this lengthy article today. It was un utterly unrelated to prep for the episode. But I was reading this article about a conference, an educators conference this summer in Florida, uh -huh. shortly, af shortly after Parkland. And... At this educators conference in Florida was dozens of vendors, like sales companies. Sure, yeah. Trying to get administrations and schools who are attending this conference to consider their security measure product that they are now hyping. It's, it's bulletproof doors for classrooms that cost $4,000. Mm. It's all these measures. And I'm ignoring, as a parent, the 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 deeply unsettling nature of this thing even existing. What I want to pivot to though is some of the conclusions from this article is simply to say there is unproven data on any of this being effective in what they're actually trying to sell you on, which is abate your fear by buying this thing. Well, mm. where I'm going with that is they do highlight this program called Sandy Hook Promise, clearly based on Newtown. Oh, wow. Some parents who started to try to figure out how do we avert this and what they created was a connection a network of um, students and administration and law enforcement for people to flag social media commentary mm. because basically what they're saying is the problem isn't 
how do we stop these things? How do we minimize the death in a school when these things happen is how do we stop it from ever getting there? And so basically what they're saying is if you see a peer in your social network posting inflammatory uh, hate speech or threatening conversation, you can report it to this sort of line of dialogue, you know, this, this, this network that's going to respond appropriately. Yeah. Anyway. And the reason I even incorporate that here is simply like, we are, (laughs) we aren't strangers on a train. We're strangers on the damn internet. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we're, when we're just saying whatever the hell comes to mind, Mm -hmm. regardless of what it might actually indicate about our inner self. I, I, it's funny. I started this by saying I don't have this scripted thing. I really don't. This is just me free flow. And please talk, Reed. I, <laughs> no, I'm just no, no. trying I'm to get, get us going, yeah, talking true. about our words and like the delicate, sensitive nature of and and you know James scripturally often used as this sort of reference to the power of the tongue. Like my goodness, we take that for granted. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? Any, any oh, sort of- oh gosh, yeah, yeah. I was just waiting to let you <laughs> let you get, yeah, in, yeah. get some of it out yeah. of your system. So, I mean, the correlation you're making to so I'm gonna I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna camp out on it for a second, then I'm gonna take it one step further because sure. um, the correlation you're making to sort of the idleness of it is it's really of, a, of what of our of words. Our words. What, what you, yeah, the yeah, idle yeah. nature of our words. It is so very easy to look back in hindsight on a thing and now everything that you look back on is in light of what you now know has happened. Hence, somebody perpetrates a violent act, somebody perpetrates something uh, heinous or insidious in their life, then you look back on all of the things that they said retroactively and it now provides commentary to what they did. Right, Um, right. And so, yeah, Bruno is a complete, you know, crackpot until suddenly he kills Guy's wife. And now right. suddenly it's like, oh, man, had it, you know, I like to think that, well, and there's evidence in the film to it, that had Guy taken his commentary seriously, he would have stopped it right then. Like, no, 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 no. Like, you, you, can't, you can't even speculate about something like that. You, you can't even joke about a thing like that. Um, but again, as we've already mentioned, he's just made uncomfortable by it, and so he wants to distance it. So, right. When people put things out there on social media, um, I think there's an emboldening. We, you know, I mean, you've heard it referred to as keyboard courage, where somebody's just they they feel anonymous. They have this platform. I'm just going to say what I think, and they and they write it down. They type it out, uh, or they, you know, something that I think is slightly worse, potentially slightly more damaging, um, although that's negligible, is uh, share a meme. You know, share. A, I'm gonna I'm gonna associate a picture with this very reductive set of thoughts right, on right. this very complicated issue, and then I'm just gonna share that out, and that's that's gonna be how I I get this out into the world. But where I think it's even more damaging than that is the way in which, and this is what I get somewhat I get somewhat unsettled by the climate is because what Bruno does is Br- Bruno is insane. Like Bruno is Bruno is crazy in the film. He is he is psychopathic to a degree and uh, has no concept of legitimate right and wrong, at least to the degree that he does. He somehow justifies murder. (laughs) And what's interesting to me is 
He then tries to hold Guy to the tacit endorsement that Guy gave him by not, you know, stopping it or by not speaking against it. So here's what I think is interesting in the social media context you're scratching at is the way in which we not only can throw out idle thoughts and careless thoughts, having no context for the kind of damage we may be doing by our carelessness, but then something goes awry, something goes amiss, and we want to so badly you know, express something different in light of that tragedy. But now there's all kinds of people who are going to hold you accountable for your tacit endorsement of this thing when there was no, this is what I mean by like retroactively looking back on it in light of what actually has happened. And then at the time you think, oh, this is just, this is just things we say. This is just something we say. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. But unfortunately when things go wrong or when something very devastating happens, now everything means something. Now all of the casual words, all of the idle words, as the scriptures call it, now provide this this very painful commentary on the state of our thoughts about this matter. And I think it I do think it's complicated, but I think it's a, a sobering reminder that we should be very intentional with our words. Now this is right. not now this is not to say particularly in light of certain conversations. I love how you you presented there's a distinction between dialogue and relationship, either therapy or you and I or whatever. I mean, granted, the conversations we have on this podcast are certainly casual and they're certainly uh, intended to be fun. But I don't know that you and I ever lose sight of the fact that this will be heard. I mean, maybe, you know, especially when we get into a groove, I, you know, we, we, we recognize that this will be heard by someone. But even mm-hmm. still, to a degree, there may be something casually said in you know the course of a conversation that somebody may latch on to and be like, "Oh yeah, the you know they made this very passive joke that was terribly offensive," and right. you know, I mean, you and I, I'm sure, would you know retroactively look back at that and say, "Well, you know, we have little to no intention of offending except when we're positing something uh, thematic that we think is supposed to be challenging or provocative." But we sure, you know sure. we certainly don't intentionally set out to make people mad or to make people upset. And I don't know, the, the whole thing I find fascinating in terms of words, how careless we are with them, the power that is ascribed to them, usually in light of events that have taken place after those words have been said. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, it's just fascinating to me. We do need places, safe spaces, in which we can say whatever needs to get out of our system without fear of judgment or repercussion. We all need those places. But I think you and I would wholeheartedly agree the one place that cannot be is anything social media or, or anything remotely public. Like, you you cannot speak. I think the damaging thing about social media, and then, then I'll conclude this and, and gather some additional thoughts. I think the damaging thing about social media is that because you are alone when you type it, there's the presumption that only the person you're addressing will see it or that maybe only a few people will see it. Sure. Without realizing that the moment you put it out there, like it it is completely public. Like your right. your your own individual Facebook profile or your Twitter profile or whatever may be set to private, but like it's there, somebody can get it. Like it it, it is visible to, you know, to somebody even if that is just your friends group. And so we lose track of how we are speaking perhaps to relationship, maybe meant to address one or two of our friends, but because of the platform, 
it is words divorced from relationship because anybody else can find them and recontextualize them to their own ends. And that's a very scary thing and and should be a totally and 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 you know you'll be proud of me reed i have there's not a whole lot of like strict data i can point to but i have been intentional and been a little more mindful of not my posting but my usage period ah yeah yeah you know kind of attempted to curb that a decent amount i am proud um just just trying to break that addiction a bit but you know, even then, you've got those impulses. I, I hope it's not just me here. Well, where you will see, like, you know, as happens, this, this is this is probably ninety percent of the the Facebook fights, which is just the dumbest thing in the world that exists. <laughs> yes. But you know, like, I I see a post you make. I'm just using this anecdotally. I see a post you make, and a third party that I don't know, but that you do, has posted something, and I look at that and I think that person's an idiot. <laughs> and I want to chime. I want to chime in with just this real glib, cynical, like sure. you're a dummy type of note. And I, brother, I have those impulses. Let Let's not oh, be course. fooled here and think I'm as you know spit shine as I come off on the show. But um, <laughs> you know, and and just those moments where you're like what are you doing? You know, to mm-hmm. like the, the internal, the inner monologue. It's like, Oh my gosh. Um, it's funny. I was just listening to this really great podcast and maybe I'll post it in the Facebook group, uh, interview with Richard Rohr, whom I've oh, referenced yeah. multiple times. Yeah. And, and yeah, I sent that to you. I yeah. forgot. Yeah, you did. And, uh, I actually didn't know who this guy was, but Pete Holmes, who apparently has roots in the com- comedy world and actually yes. is now yes. Rob Bell peers. And, and so it, it, it was the most lengthy Richard Rohr interview I'd seen. So I was like, oh, that's cool. It's yard work day. So it was about an hour 45. But it's fascinating. He was talking about that negativity. And he wasn't speaking specifically of social media per se or as a form. He was speaking more to just our impulse to know everything, as it were. Like, mm-hmm. like news and the world and all the things. And, oh, this is me putting words in his mouth here, but, oh, Trump said this, or Trump did that, or, you know, the so-and-sos did this, or the idiots did that. And and there was this real humbling statement that he said that may as well have been to me. And he said, you don't need to know everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I this phrase, he used this phrase out of a different person's mouth. I might have been dubious of it, but it, it had special sensitivity because I do have such a dear respect for him that I was able to receive it. He said, when all we're doing is absorbing this content, you are becoming... He was juxtaposing silence as ministry to mm. oneself, like okay. self-care. Right. Uh, the self-care of sort of silence and sort of removing yourself from the clutter and the clatter and the noise. And he was saying, all you're doing when you don't pursue the silence is you're basically being influenced by the cultural agenda. Mm. And again that phrase maybe from someone else I would have been, I would have rolled my eyes, but because I have such a fondness and respect for him, I, I was able to hear it and receive it. But it just had this real pricking of the spirit to me of like the words of others, how they settle and nestle and rest and stew in us, mm-hmm. the words that come out of us and how they wrestle or, or settle and nestle and reside and stew in others. Like there is such a call for mindfulness of all of that. Yeah. This is a random, this is a random anecdote. My brother uh, is 
uh, he co-pastors a church in Georgia and he blogs routinely and, and, and actually with great discipline. And I, I respect him for the discipline he exercises in, in putting it out there. And, and I've, he and I've had these conversations cause he kind of encourages me to do more writing and, 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 and you might as my friend too, but oh, this is me, this is me being frank here. I tell him, I said, I, I have those burdens and I have those impulses. I also know my tendency and this, yes, one could argue, Nathan, you're making excuses and, and I would hear that. And that might be true, but I also know myself enough to know I can get fiery and cynical as well. And I, and I see all the garbage that just gets vomited mm-hmm. into the, into the interwebs. And I'm like, do I want to be a part of that? That's mm-hmm. again, that's a whole asterisk and sidebar, but yeah, you know I what understand. I'm saying? Like yeah, 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 the I words, understand. the words just become idle in, in your sort of analogizing scripture right, or appropriating right. scripture there. It's like, it feels like, even though I know if it's from a place of truth and passion that you're less prone to the idleness, but that's how it can feel sometimes of like, why don't you put more words out there? Why? Cause there's so many damn words as it is. Sure, you know? right. <laughs> like, <laughs> but one of the things that I, okay. So one of the things that I want to, want to dig in on just a little bit is the way and and i don't know this will this will probably prompt a little bit of thought and then maybe we can wind down the plane but sure the so the way that the something that i can't escape in relation to this movie is the way understanding of words that have been spoken idly can compel someone to almost sadistic loyalty an extortion to loyalty and here's what i mean by this so I mentioned this earlier in sort of my diatribe, but the thoughts are becoming a bit more clear. So forgive me for a moment's repetition, and then I'll reinforce with a different thought. So Bruno posits, hey, let's swap murders. Guy. Crisscross. Yeah, crisscross. Guy, thinking Bruno's crazy, is just like, sure, yeah, we talk the same language. Move along. Yeah, that's fine. Go on. And then just, you know, sort of passes, passes him off, dismisses him, right? Well, then Bruno kills Guy's wife. And so, so then all of these things come from who may or may not be with child, by the way. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. And so he kills her. And then guy who so flippantly said I could strangle her. And then she actually, you know, was strangled. Um, incidentally, side note, movie poster, the original, one of the original movie posters had the word strangers on a train with a picture of Alfred Hitchcock trying to shove an L into the word strangers. So it said stranglers on a train. Oh, wow. Yeah. But um, anyway, getting back to my point. So uh, one of the things that I find really compelling about this film and this premise is Guy never endorsed what Bruno did, but Bruno is fully convinced that that's what happened. And so as a result is extorting and blackmailing him into loyalty to it. And I'm thinking about the current climate of things where the moment the moment you have sort of passively or tacitly endorsed one element of thing, even dismissively, uh, politics, society, uh, social infrastructure, whatever it is that you've passively said, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I pretty much line up with that. I pretty much line up with that. That's fine. Well, then if it goes a bridge too far, now there's a strong resistance to actually kicking back against it for moral and ethical reasons. Because what they compel you to is, hey, you're in as deep as we are. You've got to stay loyal to this. You're you're can, in. Can you can you be a little more clear? I'm a little sure, confused. sure, sure. So one of the things that I see, or one of the things that I observe, and maybe I'm incorrect about it, I'm thinking specifically of politics and trying to not be too uh, explicit about it. 
but let me be, you know, a, a bit more unambiguous. And the fact of, like, I think there are some members of the Democratic Party who don't like certain trends in the Democratic Party, but they're not really prone to kick against those things because they've got to show loyalty to the party because the Republicans got to be stopped. And I think right, there's right. people in the Republican Party who don't like certain things that either our president or certain prominent leaders in the Republican Party say or endorse or do. They don't like some of those things, but they keep getting pulled into endorsing those people and those things because you can't be disloyal to this party because the other guys, you know, it, there's like this sure, sure, this sure. widening um, proneness to loyalty because you've tacitly or passively endorsed that side of the argument as a whole. By association. Yes, sure. by association. And so, you know, maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but one of the things that stands out to me in this is how Bruno is basically coercing Guy by saying like, hey, you gave me permission to do this. And so because you gave me permission to do this, let me let me be unambiguous about the language and risk getting in trouble. Hey, you voted me in. So so now, you know, like you've got to you've got to be on my side. You can't challenge me. You you're the one elected me or the reverse of that. Well, the people from the other side would be like, hey, you elected them. So you're just as guilty as they are. And so what what happens is this further division based on an association of loyalty widens the gap where people can't have substantive conversations about individual issues anymore where now the the those on the left get pushed further and further to the left and those on the right get pushed further and further to the right instead of everybody having the actual tangible conversation about like hey we've got to find a way to you know still be a nation of immigrants and not disrupt our entire fiscal structure we've got to find a way to still you know be responsible but not allow the the perpetuations of gun violence to continue you know it's or or any right, number of right. any number of issues where it's like hey we've got to find a way to make this and this happen but we can't do that as long as people are still saying like hey you endorsed this so you need to come over to here to my side and you need to do what i'm telling you to do in other words, it's like because Bruno presumes that Guy has given him permission to kill the wife, now he is holding him to murder, compelling him to murder. And the misunderstanding was completely Bruno's, was entirely Bruno's, or the, the insanity, as it were, was entirely sure. on that end. So Guy can rail against it, but then he keeps getting pushed deeper and deeper into this problem. And and that's something if we're looking at the power of words and if we're looking at the way words can be used to compel or I will even use the word coerce others into things that they might not feel very comfortable with. They might not feel very, very uh, aligned with. And so what happens is you reach places and, and let me step out of the political realm for a second and go into the religious one. I have friends who who are either from Iran or Afghanistan or they are of religion Muslim, and there is this constant kind of um, subheading to their conversations when they talk about things where they have to, but I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this. And they have to right. give like all of these different qualifiers. And I feel the same way like as a Christian sometimes. It's like, well, I'm a Christian. What I don't mean by that is that I am right, you know feel right, all right, these right. other ways about all of these other things. Um, and, and, for brevity's sake, I won't unpack every single category, but hopefully you can see my point that it's like once you associate yourself in a place, if that place gets pushed to its extremities, then you feel some difficulty 
with actually being a part of that thing anymore and something that you may have passively invoked or may have even shared language with in different contexts now becomes this haunting sort of a depraved distorted thing that you actively don't want to endorse and so what happens is people will either join their friends in the extremities or they'll go silent they just they just won't say anything as opposed right. to fighting for an actual conversation within the subgroup, fighting for an actual sort of change or shift within the subgroup to where it's like, hey, guys, like, I don't want to sound... And, and, and some of this comes from a personal status where I, I consider myself rather centrist. So to my liberal friends, I sound very conservative. And to my conservative friends, I sound highly liberal. And it's, it's all just because of their position in correlation to my position. But it's frustrating to have that sort of um, resistance every time you try to have a substantial conversation about the issues and try to understand what's at root for everything. But people will express loyalty. I can't, uh, and, and really I just go silent on the issue. I can't, <laughs> just to use a tangible example, I can't criticize President Trump without my conservative friends coming at me. I can't defend him without all of my liberal friends feeling betrayed. And it's just frustrating because sometimes an issue arises that is not binary, that is not just on this side or that side. And it usually arises out of very casual, very passive statements and commentary about the, the world and the, the climate that we're currently living in. Somebody will make an observation that I'm like, well, listen, I agree with your heart, but I don't agree with your language. Or, oh, you know, I disagree entirely. Or maybe they kind of make a good point. But the moment that you kind of throw your hat into that ring, then people come in and try like little Brunos to push you into places where they want you to be because of your endorsements. Does that make any sense at all, or am I still out in the weeds? Uh, no, it makes some sense. I um, I think it's definitely a a a construction using the Bruno guy dynamic as its base, you know, it's, I'm, I'm trying to kind of figure out, but because I think if, if maybe this is a, roughly the heart of what you're saying, or at least it's how I'm interpreting what you're saying. I think ultimately what we should be after is thoughtfulness in how we observe and filter the world around us. Right. Right. Directness in speech consideration of others in that directness yes yeah resistance to easily applied labels right um yes. yeah i mean i think i it is hard as someone who decided it was time to pay attention in november of 2016 uh, which is terrible <laughs> um, right, right it's hard to not see and then get swept up in the, the just maelstrom that is occurring in our speech and in our governance and in our politics and whatnot. Sure, you know, sure. Because, because, because I think the, the seed of what you're identifying in this film is simply, you know, we've referenced it a couple of times jokingly, but the crisscross, like, yes. well, I, I said this, but I really meant that. But you heard this, even though that's not what I meant. You know, I mean, it's just suddenly... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm this thing that spirals beyond our capacity to contain it. Yes. Um, 
and they Which hold you again, uh, just real quick, just a, yeah, a, yeah, a yeah. one sentence insertion, and they hold you accountable to what they heard, not to what you said. That always yes. Happens. Well, and it's funny you said that on on this trip I referenced with buddies Matt and Stephen. Matt made a comment that I think is there's a lot of truth to, but we were talking about some of these issues, and he made the comment of like, "Well, perception is reality." You know, just like mm-hmm. how a person heard what you said, Reed is their reality. And I'm not arguing that that should be the case. I'm simply no, saying, sure. right, right, right. I think there's a lot of truth to that, but I do think, and maybe this scales us back to, to some sort of uh, landing zone landing strip is it. And, and is perhaps why, <laughs> except for the most utilitarian purposes, we should all abandon social media, except mm-hmm. you in the Facebook, you in the fear of God Facebook group. Cause y'all are awesome. Um, you really are because, I think what you may be identifying, even though, and, and maybe subconsciously or, or stating this, and I'll, I'll pull it out consciously, is these conversations have to happen in relationship. They do, yes, like, yes. Like, it's not my, and, and we are seeing this when people's social construct, you know, how you have decided to view the world, mm-hmm. which on a certain level is a choice as much as it is. Uh, affected by external factors sure but yes when it conflicts with mine things i would say that may sound totally reasonable to me and to most people that i think are reasonable rational people you're gonna hear and totally misconstrue Mm. because we're not in relationship right yeah exactly you know, and I, I don't hear me. This is why I'm not an, a politician. I don't, or <laughs> sure. maybe, for, maybe for many reasons, but I don't know how you scale that upwards right. in the moment. Right. Like, how do you scale up the notion of like true change and true communication and true uh, laying down of arms, literally right. and yeah. philosophically, yeah. are only existent in relationship? Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it's exactly true. You have to care more about the relationship than you do right. about the positions. And that is something that I think all of us would agree it's disintegrating right before our eyes. Positions right. are overriding relationships and people are unfriending each other and Thanksgiving is becoming terribly, terribly awkward. And so, you know, it is one of those things where like, let that, you know, perhaps be a final consideration for you if you are traveling on your way to Thanksgiving or if you are at Thanksgiving or whatever, let that be an ultimate consideration that your relationship has to matter more than any of these other things. And, and we ourselves should be, um, as the scriptures compel us to be, ambassadors towards reconciliation and ambassadors towards protecting those relationships. And even when we, even when we find ourselves in the midst of complicated and idle words, really treasuring the human being and the human factor that is behind all of those things and pursuing and trying to draw that out the places where we would stand together, which I'll, I'll go ahead and make a laundry list. The places where we would stand together is perhaps our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our hurts, sharing those things will, will help to bridge those gaps, those established relationships, shared hopes, shared dreams, shared wants will matter more to you than your political or social opinion about something. And so digging in more deeply on that to where the relationship matters more that that will be of tremendous help and that that will probably make your thanksgiving food taste better i'm just i'm just saying so that now as a final note instead of strangers on a train (laughs) you're 
Friends on a Train. Aww, which is also a, a you know a less compelling title, but still, it's it's yes, a better it is, reality. It it's a better reality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, that was I enjoyed that. I didn't even I didn't even bring in the scripture, which I'll just miss, mention only in passing that uh, the scripture I had in mind for Proverbs chapter was Proverbs chapter eighteen, verse twenty one. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Um, so keep that in mind when you're speaking words out. You have the power of life and death, and you will eat those words one way or another. So let you serve that up with your cranberry sauce yeah. and, your, and your yams, your candied yams. Um, okay, so uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that has been our conversation about strangers on a train. We want to bring in our old friend uh, who is no stranger to the fear of God, old David S. Pumpkin Pie! <laughs> Wait. <laughs> 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 David S. Pumpkin yes, Pie. That's David S. Pumpkin Pie. That's my favorite David S. Pumpkin Pie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Um, With right. a full mouth, you're like, any questions? So, what? so what do you want for scared stuff? Okay, so um, I won't do that the whole time. Um, okay. So we... we measure every film we cover in a metric of style, scares, and substance. Uh, Nathan Rouse, I'm going to come to you first. What would you give Alfred Hitchcock's... I love that the way you said that implied that there was like dozens of others of us in the conversation. You're like, Nathan Rouse. One, there's other Nathans in the conversation. Yes, exactly. Two, there's just other people at all. You're like, Nathan Rouse, you first. I'm still on last Uh, last week's mode. You know, like I'm still still thinking there's multiple people in the conversation. Ooh, ooh, Reed, can I go first? Yes, in fact, you there in the back, you there, yes, with, with okay. your hoodie, um, in the you... <laughs> hood, in the freezing blanket. Um, what would you give strangers on a strain for style? Strangers on a strain. Strangers a... to strain. <laughs> I'm drinking Dr Pepper. I can't do this. How would you rank the strangers on a strain? <laughs> what about the strangers on a strain? <laughs> um, Stop it. What am I sitting under? uh style oh um i i liked it a good bit i mean i think i think i would probably land at a three and a half for now all right okay all right um i'm gonna land at a four and a half for style yes i really enjoy this film i do think it holds up remarkably well under repeat viewings and i think you will you know find yourself should you choose to revisit this film at some point that you will find yourself enriched by knowing where it's going and by digging a little deeper into some of the interior moments but um so for scares uh as we've already mentioned and maybe i mean you know we've been we've been called out before on like hey does every film have to be scary and blah 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 we'll we'll examine those metrics further for right now scares i'm gonna land honestly at a probably a two and a half for scares i think the premise is chilling and it definitely has some impactful moments it's definitely very suspenseful but uh as we're understanding the metric at this time not a terribly scary film um and definitely accessible for everyone uh it should you choose to seek it out so two and a half for me for scares i'm gonna um i'm gonna go with two on scares all right they're just you know yeah i do said. i do yeah no all that uh how would how would you rent uh landed on substance uh, I think for substance, I'm actually going to go for a four. Uh, right. I think there's some considerable, not just the random nooks and crannies we found, but I mean, it's a movie that's all about the substance of our our interactions. You know, right. and I think that's right. a really a really compelling sort of idea. Absolutely. I am going to join you in your four. I think it's a, a really remarkable film with a lot to say. And uh, yeah, all, all those things that you said. Nathan, I got a surprise for you. You're never, you're never gonna believe 
what we gave strangers on a train. You're not going to believe it. So shocking. So shocking. We gave it a seven. A seven? A seven! What? We never do that. That never happens. That never happens. We never give it a I actually seven. Thought we'd, I actually thought we would skew a hair lower for that one, but hey, you know. <laughs> nope. It is us, and we're just generous people. We, you just, know? we just give it a seven. That's what this what we do. Um, so, no, seven out of ten. That is, that is Reed, that is what we do, and I, I do certainly admire people who do things. So, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> I think everybody should do everything before they die. <laughs> 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 all right well ladies and gentlemen that has been our episode on strangers uh strangers on a train man <laughs> stranger I cannot, stranger things on a train i cannot speak it is earlier in the evening where i am than where you are i am drinking dr pepper i don't know why i can't speak. What, I we can't should do the the hitchcock duffer brothers crossover stranger things on a train i think that should happen <laughs> oh um, i like it i like it quite know. a bit and 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 read Everyone has someone they want put away. So this Thanksgiving, uh, you know, just just banish that thought and enjoy <laughs> enjoy the turkey or whatever sort of vegetarian substitute. Sincerely, you have. yes, sincerely. We hope you have a very very happy and wonderful Thanksgiving. And speaking of turkey, or at least speaking of birds, next week <laughs> as our conclusion to uh, the umbrella of this year of examining the films of Alfred Hitchcock, and specifically of the conclusion of this two parter. Hashtag Hitchcock's Giving. We are going to go ahead and cook up The Birds by Alfred Hitchcock. So reacquaint yourself with that film and meet us back here next week. Nathan, thank you so much, as always, for this conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Reed. I appreciate being in relationship with you. (laughs) Likewise. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com for show notes, or to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.